It's always good to reflect upon the cross of Christ. I was speaking with someone yesterday talking about a, a Spirit-filled church. And you know what the sign of a Spirit-filled church is? It's not a sign of a church that's really whooping it up. It's a sign of a church that's uh, focused upon Christ. Because the Spirit said when He comes, He'll glorify Him. And so the extent that we will worship the Son will be in sync with the Spirit. And He will be exalted and honored. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philemon. In recent weeks, we've been looking at this epistle written by Paul to a loved friend of his named Philemon. And um, we've been really just kind of milking this book for all that it's worth. There's lots of lessons for this book to teach us. And, and every single one of my messages have been very applicational. I'm not sure you've noticed that, but it has. It's been very, uh, very uh, much addressing our situation where we are, how we can apply the Scriptures in our lives, because it's the nature of the book of Philemon. Um, all of Paul's letters, packed with great doctrine of of teaching of the glories of Christ or, you know, the, the mysteries of, of the afterlife or the, the resurrection or the, the gospel. And yet you come to Philemon and, you know what, there's no major doctrinal teaching in this book. It's a book of application for Christian living. And, uh, I mean, certainly it's grounded upon all of the theology of Paul and all the theology of Scripture but it's very applicational. It's a, a real-life story of a, of a man named Philemon who experienced a, a great offense, a great hurt as his slave, Onesimus, ran away from him. Onesimus found his way to Rome where he met Paul and was wondrously converted. And now Paul is sending him back, saying you need to make things right. As a new creature in Christ, you need to, to do things right. And the way to do things is to, to make up to seek forgiveness from your former master Philemon. In fact, some have said even that uh, forgiveness is the core of the letter. And so that's what we're really going to address this morning as we surveyed it one week, all of Philemon. We've bounced into different sections of it. Today we're going to bounce just right in verses 8 and 9, looking at the issue of forgiveness. We're going to look at this letter from Philemon's perspective he received this letter and was confronted with the need to forgive Onesimus. And that's what this is about. It's about forgiveness, verses 8 and 9 are. Let me just read them for you. Therefore, Paul says, after building him up for verses 4 through 7, speaking about all the wondrous ways in which God was working in Philemon's life to show him, hey, Philemon, I'm for you, I'm not against you. He then says this in um, verse 8, Therefore, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what's proper, by that he means to forgive Onesimus, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. My message this morning is just going to be upon those two verses, those small words there talking about forgiveness. Before, though, we address this issue of forgiveness, because that's what it is, he finally gets down to verse 10 to the appeal. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. My begotten in my imprisonment. I want you to receive him, is what he's saying. I want you to forgive him. I want you to be reconciled with him. Before we talk about forgiveness, we need to really think about what forgiveness is. You know, there are four events that need to take place if uh, someone's going to be forgiven. Can, can you think of any little audience interaction here? What, what needs to take place if forgiveness is going is to happen? What needs to take place? 
Okay, confession. But before confession, what needs to take place? Before acknowledging a wrong, it's like confession. Something else needs to take place. Repentance, the same thing. Repentance and acknowledging the wrong and confession. I'm asking this because I knew you'd forget this. Okay, what 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 needs to take place before forgiveness happens? A sin needs to be committed. Exactly right. A sin needs to be committed because that's what forgiveness is dealing with. Thank you, Susan. Second, contrition, sorrow, repentance. You know, expressing that. What else needs to happen? I'm thinking about two more steps. Okay, humility probably brings you to this stage, right? An apology, right? And a confession there, an expression of sorrow, right? It needs to not only admit the sin, commit the sin, admit the sin, express sorrow for the sin, which I think would include. Yeah. A change of heart, absolutely. And that's where the sorrow and the repentance, the confession of sin. And really the third thing I'm looking at is an offer of forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And then on the back end, what's the last thing that has got to have happened for forgiveness to take place? Accept it. You need to accept that forgiveness. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about forgiveness taking place. Let me just comment a little bit on this. When you confess your sin to somebody else, it ought not to be a time where you water it down. Don't, don't say, you know what, I didn't mean it. That, that, like, that like clouds the issue. The issue is that you did mean it. The issue is today you're sorry that you did it. And you feel bad. And you're repentant. And you're sorrowful. And finally, even when uh, the, the forgiveness is accepted, you need to realize that forgiveness isn't, isn't a feeling. It, when you say... I forgive you. You're not saying, you know what, all is well in my soul and, and we're just happy and this is great and we're all together. No, what you're saying when you say, I forgive you, is you are making a promise in that day. You are promising that that sin that you committed against me, you have expressed your sorrow for that. You've asked me for forgiveness. I forgive you. I'm promising I will never take that sin that you committed against me. I will never bring it up again and use it as as army against you as a weapon to fight you. Do you remember when you did this? I will never do that again. It's a promise. It's also a promise that says that it's dealt with. It is done. I'm not going to bring it up again. See, when forgiveness takes place, both parties let go of their sin. It's not that they forget what took place. Rather, they acknowledge what took place. Clearly define what took place. The sinning party expresses a sorrow for sin. The Sinned against party has gone on record that forgiveness is granted, no revenge will be sought. And then when that takes place, you know what? The burden is lifted. The burden is off of you. It's off of them. This weight of sin is, is gone. And that's what forgiveness is. That's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness doesn't forget the offense. Forgiveness removes the offense. Forgiveness doesn't lessen the severity of the offense. It doesn't ignore the hurt of the offense. Rather, forgiveness is a promise that I won't take into account a wrong suffered. Forgiveness is a pledge that the wrong done will not be brought up again with any malicious intent. It just won't be. In fact, that's how God is like when He forgives. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I will remember your sins no longer. 
The idea here isn't that God forgets, it's that He willfully chooses not to bring them to remembrance. I will forgive their iniquity, Jeremiah 31, 34, and their sin I will remember no more. Right? I'm not going to bring it to remembrance. God can't forget. God knows the sin. But He sees how it was covered in the blood of Christ. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. See, that's how God deals with our sin. He takes our, our sin and transgression and removes it far away. He chooses never again to use the evidence in the court of law against us. So He does. Let me show you how forgiveness works in a real life example. Um, a friend of mine, uh, it's kind of more of an acquaintance, he's not a close friend of mine, but I know a man who's a pastor, he's, um, he's, he's older on in life, has a very successful church, and um, his son was looking to be married to this gal. And it came out in the course of things, in the relationship, or you know, premarital counseling or whatever, that um, she had not kept herself pure in a previous, marriage, in a previous relationship, she'd lost her virginity. And... Uh, the father's counsel to the son was basically this. He said, before you marry her, you need to forgive her and resolve in your mind right now that you will never, ever, ever bring this up again. It's done. It's in the past. And you need to keep it in the past. You need to make the promise that you will never hold this against her in the future. And there may be a time when you have some marital conflict and, and, and fighting and, and you may want to hurt her badly by bringing up this remembrance of the past, but you cannot do that. And you need, before you marry her, you need to resolve that you will do that. That's forgiveness. Is never bringing up the offense, never bringing it back again. And that's what we're going to address today. So maybe this morning finds you with people in your life who have wronged you. Maybe they've hurt you deep and bad. And maybe within you, you simply can't find the strength to forgive that person. I know it's a real probability for many of us here in the room of people who've hurt us badly and um, it's just hard. Well, this message is for you because this message is all about forgiveness. Now, I'm not going to preach a whole theology about forgiveness. There's certainly lots I'm going to leave out, but we're just going to speak about forgiveness of the things that Paul brings up. Fair? First of all, verse 8, forgiveness is the proper thing. Forgiveness is the proper thing. That's what Paul says here, verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper... Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Here Paul is really introducing the subject about receiving Onesimus back as a slave. Paul is appealing to him for Onesimus as he identifies here in verse 10. <coughs> and part of that reception would require that Philemon would have to extend forgiveness to his former slave. And, and Paul says that receiving him back would be the proper thing to do. Now different translations translate this word in different ways. The New King James says that it's the fitting thing to do. The NIV says that receiving Philemon, receiving Onesimus back is what ought to be done. The ESV says that receiving Onesimus back is the required thing. All these, they're getting at the, the same idea. The, the idea here is that forgiveness is the right thing. Philemon should take his slave back forgiving him of the wrong he's done. That's the right thing for Philemon to do. 
Now, one of the things you need to realize at this point is that we're dealing with believers. Philemon's a believer and Onesimus is a believer. We know that because in verse 20, Paul calls Philemon a brother. In verse 16, Paul calls Onesimus a brother as well. These are, these are endearing terms, right? Affectionate way of identifying another believer. They're part of the family of God. They are brothers. These are two people who have come to God, confessed their sins, They've acknowledged their need of a Savior. They've freely, both of them, freely admitted before God and others. They've failed to keep God's righteous standard of the law. And thus they're worthy of eternal damnation. They've both felt sorrow for their sin. They've hated their sin. They've repented of their sin. They've turned to God. They've placed their faith in Christ who bore the wrath of their sin upon the tree. As a result, they've experienced forgiveness of sins that comes from God above. And as they've both freely received this forgiveness of sins from God, the proper thing to do is extend forgiveness to others who have sinned against them. It's really the scope of my message this morning. is really dealing with two people who are openly acknowledging their sin before one another. It's a different ballgame when one of the parties is unrepentant. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And almost a clear sense of that scripture, what Jesus said, is that if there's no acknowledgement of sin made, the obligation of forgiveness isn't there. If he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. And you know what? In our forgiveness of others, we need to imitate God. We'll see that in a little bit. And God doesn't forgive unrepentant people. Now, before you sit smug saying, Ah, I knew I could have an, unrepent, uh, an unforgiving spirit towards that person because he's never come to me. He's never confessed his sin. Well, let me say this. Is this the obligation of all of God's people to have a spirit of forgiveness and willingness to absolutely forgive anybody? Think of Jesus hanging on the cross, brutally murdered by uncaring, unloving, wicked men. And his heart for forgiveness shines through. Remember what he says? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now notice here, Jesus isn't forgiving them at that moment. He's not saying, I forgive them. Indeed, I think there were many there at the cross who were looking on who weren't ever forgiven of God. But Jesus had a heart of forgiveness. Jesus was praying for their ultimate forgiveness. Jesus was praying for their repentance that forgiveness might be extended. And you need to have that to everybody. Whether it's Christian or non-Christian, where sin's confessed. You ought not to have any type of, of anger and animosity towards others. You need to... You need to even as Jesus did upon the cross, be willing to forgive them. Now that whole transaction of everything I said that needs to take place for forgiveness might not happen if someone's not repented of their sin and might not confess their sin. Well, that whole thing can't happen. But it doesn't mean that you can then hold a, a wicked, hateful, vengeful spirit towards them. That's not Godlike. Well, it is Godlike, but He's perfect. He can handle it. We can't handle it. Right? We need to be those who are tender-hearted, compassionate, Forgiving each other, right? Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. 
That's what we need to do. We need to be kind. We need to be tender-hearted. We need to be forgiving each other just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Same is taught in Colossians 3, verse 13, which, by the way, Philemon would have, um, would have read and would have known. Because you remember, the reason why we're exposing Philemon is because it came on the, on the heels of Colossians. Because Onesimus was there with Paul in prison, and he and Tychicus went, went back to Colossae, delivered the letter of Colossians, and went to deliver this letter of Philemon as well. And so they were there. So they would have known this. And as the letter of Colossians would have been read in the church there in Colossae, Philemon would have heard this. Forgive each other, Colossians 3.13. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. It's a call of every believer in Christ to extend a kind, tender heart towards others, especially when they've wronged us. Just as God has forgiven me, God calls me. The proper thing is to forgive others also. And just as God has forgiven you, if you're a believer in Christ today, you are called to forgive others as well. And so the question really comes up. If the standard of our forgiveness is God's standard of our forgiveness for us, then the question is, how exactly has God forgiven me? How has God forgiven you? Well, let's just go through what God does when He forgives. First of all, there is a transgression. In your sin, you have offended God greatly. The Lord Almighty is a holy, holy God. In fact, you know what? God is a holy, holy, holy God. That even the purest, sinless beings in the universe can't be in His presence without covering their eyes. The most righteous of men, Isaiah, when he stood before this thrice holy God, was on his knees undone and ruined before Him. All of God's ways are right. All of His ways are just. No evil dwells with God. And God is so pure that He can't stand wickedness. In fact, His wrath and His anger boils steams against all unrighteousness and wickedness of men. And I would say that His anger steams against sin far more than you can ever imagine. We might kind of dust off sin and just, oh, it's a little thing. God fumes at it. He destroyed the world once by flood. And He will destroy the world again by fire because of sin. And He calls every soul that sins into account with death the wages of sin is death. The sin that souls, that soul that sins will die. That's our sin before God. But, but the wondrous thing is that God grants forgiveness to us. It's amazing. Based upon our faith in Christ, we simply need to turn from our sins and believe in Christ and we're forgiven. We just need to cry out to God for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and you will go home to your house today justified. That's your cry. We don't need to go through any religious sacrament. We don't need to make up for our sins by some act of righteousness or some promise to make it up for God some way. We don't need to confess our sins to a priest and say certain prayers. No, there's none of that. We just simply cry out to God, a plead to Him as we confess our sins. First John 1 John 1.9 He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you understand your forgiveness before God, you realize your magnitude of sin before God is great. Forgiveness is granted by a plea for mercy. 
and the forgiveness that we receive is vast and broad. Colossians 1.13 says that God in Christ has forgiven us all our transgressions. I mean, let it sink in. All of our transgressions. All of them are forgiven in Christ. 1 John 1.7 The blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. He doesn't hold back His forgiveness. He doesn't partially forgive now and partially later. It's all freely given to us in Christ. It's not like Absalom, right? Who took vengeance into his own hands and killed Amnon and violated his sister Tamar. And he fled, fearing the wrath of David. But David eventually brought him into Jerusalem. But David said, you know what? But he can't see my face in the palace. And for two years he was kept from his face. It's partial forgiveness. It's not what God does. Complete, whole forgiveness. Though we may come to God like the prodigal son, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. You know what? God will hear none of it. He won't even hear it. Remember when the prodigal son tried to make his confession back to God? He never got to the part where he said, make me like a hired man. As soon as he came back, the father just embraced him. He won't make us like hired men. He won't even hear of that. He'll kill the fattened calf. He'll rejoice. He'll celebrate. He'll make full restitution. That's what God does for us in Christ. Just by a simple plea for mercy. All our sins are wiped away. Though our sin is great, our pardon has come to us free and full and complete. No strings attached. No payment plan. No need for promises of our pledge in the future. Okay, I'll do this to make it up. None of that. Nothing further be done. Our slate is wiped clean. Our relationship with God is restored. Colossians 2.10, we stand in Him complete. And so now, how ought the one who is forgiven this way forgive others? Well... We should forgive each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven us. We need to realize that any offense that you that you that someone commits against you pales in comparison to what God has faced. I mean the the sin against God is far more than any sin ever committed against you. We need to realize that. We need to be willing to forgive, just like God forgives, based upon a word. Someone says a word. Someone makes a plea. Someone just says, be merciful to me. Please forgive me. We need to forgive. And our our forgiveness needs to be full and complete with no strings attached. I mean, think about the cross again. That was a terrible sin they did. They crucified the Lord of glory, putting Him to inextricable plane. Pain. In fact, it's excruciating pain. 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 You know the word excruciating? What that means? X. You guys know what X means, right? Exit. Cruciating, you know what that means? Cross. Excruciating pain is pain that comes out of the cross. It's like that's the definition of the greatest pain we can suffer in Jesus Christ. Suffer that. Suffer the wrath of God for our sins. All of our sins combined. All poured on Him. 
And Jesus forgave many of those who were responsible for nailing Him to the cross. You remember the day of Pentecost? Peter's preaching. How many saved? 192? 3,000 were saved on that day. And many of those were in the crowd saying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And how did He save them? By a mere word of repentance. Their sins are, are wiped away. And I just say, when encountering another believer in Christ concerning their sin, you need to deal with their sin exactly like God has dealt with it. If God has, has forgiven their sin, who are you to say, I can't forgive your sin? Who are you to have a, a higher standard of righteousness than God? Well, God can forgive you, but I can't. No, if God has forgiven it, you need to forgive it too. If it's been nailed to the cross... You need to realize that it's been forgiven by God. If He's taken it out of the way, if God no longer holds it against them, you have no right to hold sin against the sin against you against them as well. If God's taken it out of the way, why are you keeping it here? You know, when Jesus died on the cross, He died for sins that are going to be committed against you. Do you know that? And when another believer in Christ sins against you, you need to realize that Jesus died for that sin. And God looks at that sin and forgives it because of the blood of Christ. And I need to as well. So God has forgiven the sin. Let it go. God's let it go. You need to let it go. That's why forgiveness is the, is the proper thing. You know, Jesus illustrated this excellently in um, the parable in Matthew 18 about... Uh, those who owe debts. Let me just read it for you. Matthew 18, 23-35. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me. I will repay everything. Yeah, right. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him his debt. Now, who's that picturing? It's picturing every believer in Christ, this unsurmountable debt. There's no way we can repay it. God, the, the great owner, wipes it clean. And then that forgiven slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. He could repay him. A little bit of savings, a little bit of extra hours, save up, you know, over some time, a couple months maybe, a year. He could repay But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. You know, we're like that, that, that slave who's been forgiven. And when someone sins against us, it's like this little debt that they owe. And how wrong is it? I'm just telling you, it's morally wrong. For someone not to forgive a little debt if they've been forgiven a big debt. Especially if the circumstances are exactly the same. The same words come. He comes to you. It's wrong. And that's what happened. These fellow slaves saw it. 
And they were deeply grieved. And they told the Lord, this is wrong. And then summoning him, the Lord, this is a God, said, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? There it is. As you've received mercy, be merciful to others. James chapter 2, verse 13 says, Judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. And that's what's happening here. He's showing no mercy, therefore judgment is going to be merciless on it. Verse 33, Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. Somehow the, the, the debt wasn't put on the books or something. Somehow it wasn't signed legally. It's all, all forgiven. But the owner was able to retract that and said, no, 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 no. You, you don't understand. You need to pay it back all. That's how it works in life here upon the earth. That's how it works upon the spiritual realm. I mean, there's no way that we can repay our debt to God. It's so high and monstrous. And the only way to come clean before God is through Christ. And now comes along another believer who sins against you. And what's your moral obligation? It's to grant forgiveness as freely as it's been granted to you. And I'm just telling you, despite all appearances, any sin committed against you is small compared to your sin that you committed against God. It is small. And you have an obligation to forgive that sin. Forgiveness is the proper thing to do. In fact, you might even say, based upon this parable, that forgiveness is the required thing to do. You could say that easily. In fact, that's, remember, the, New King, the ESV translated, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required. What happened to the one who didn't do what was required? Didn't do what was proper? Didn't do what was right? You remember what happened to him? in Matthew. His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Unless you think that um, that only happens in the physical realm, think again. Listen to verse 35. It says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. My heavenly Father will do the same to you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. Now, I, I don't think he's talking about here about losing your salvation if you don't forgive others. I think what he's talking about here is that an unforgiving heart is an evidence you don't understand your forgiveness in Christ. Probably don't have forgiveness in Christ. That's probably the issue there. Forgiven people forgive people. That's what he's talking about. So we pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Right there ingrained into the Lord's Prayer is a prayer. God, please forgive me my debts just as I forgive other people. And Jesus clarified what He meant by that at the end of the Lord's Prayer. He said, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I'm just saying that um, forgiveness is the proper thing. Forgiveness is the required thing. Forgiveness is the right thing. Now, this is weighty stuff. 
And it has some implication upon you if you're holding in your heart resentment towards other people. You just can't have it. Now, I think there's room to struggle with it. There's room to plead for it. There's room to say, God, it's not what my feeling is, but it's what I need to be. Help me to be like Jesus. Now, that's you're on the right path there, okay? But there's no room for unforgiveness in the body of Christ because forgiveness is the proper thing. That's what Paul says here. Verse 8, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what's proper. Let's move to my second point. Love. Forgiveness is the loving thing. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Forgiveness is the loving thing. Rather than commanding Philemon to take back his runaway slave, Paul chose the route of appealing. And the reason he did is for love's sake. Now there's some difficulties. As com- you know, commentators think about this. They say, well, is this, is this Paul's love for Philemon that he's not pulling rank? Or is this Paul's affirmation of Philemon that he knows that he's a, he's a loving person and will forgive anyway? I think Peter O'Brien explained it well. He said, It's precisely because Paul knows of Philemon's kindness and generosity in the past that he's able to entreat rather than to command. And he looks forward to Philemon's love being shown once again, this time with reference to Onesimus. He's saying, Listen, as you receive him back, you need to receive him back because it's a matter of love. Because forgiveness is a loving thing. It takes, it takes love to forgive. Like I would say, it takes a lot of love to forgive. Think about the love that God has for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love towards us. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God had a love for us when we were sinners. In fact, it says in Romans 5, verse 10, that He had a love for us when we were His enemies. He didn't die for us when we were in a lovely state. He died for us, demonstrating His love when we were in a, a wicked, sinful, wretched state. How could God do that? Because it was love. Ephesians 2 says the same thing. We're all dead in our sins, how we're born. We're children of wrath. Which means that God was angry with us due to our sin, and yet it's precisely when God is angry with us due to our sin that He demonstrates His love. Being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. In our dead state, Objects of anger and wrath, that's when God came and He enacted and He made us alive, forgiving us and making us new creatures in Christ. They show the incredible, these passages show the incredible love of God that He would forgive the unlovely as we are called to do. Now, I just tell you, when you look at the face of somebody who's wronged you in a, in a, in a bad way, coming to ask forgiveness from them, it it takes, it takes a lot of love. Several months ago, I read um, Corey Ten Boom's book, The, the Hiding Place. I just kind of said, you know, I just need to, need to read this book. And uh, how many of you are familiar with this book? I know most of you are, many of you are. How many of you actually read it? Many of you have, right? Corey um, lived in Holland during the time of World War II. She's about 50 years old. Her sister, I think, was maybe a little bit older, both unmarried, living with her dad, the watchmaker, it was in his 70s or even pushing the 80s. And remember, the Nazis came. They, they invaded Holland. And uh, what Corey Ten Boom did 
uh, was became their house then became a central hub, uh, a network where Jews could come and they could find some safety, and then through the networks of relationships, perhaps send them off to a um, to a countryside village where you get willing farmers able to hide their Jews. They built a, 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 a little room in the top floor, way back part of their house, so you couldn't really tell it was it was a room behind there. But they could hold a dozen or so uh, Jewish people that could be hidden on a moment's notice from the Nazis who may have uh, stormed the house. Well, two years after operating this, um, this rescue attempt is really what it was. They were captured, taken into custody, went to jail, went to concentration camps. The dad died in jail. It was just too hard for an old man like that to endure the difficulties there. Corey and Betsy were, went between prison and concentration camps. It was difficult in prison. In fact, she was so sick one time, they put her in solitary confinement, letting her die. And, um, but she faced the horrors of solitary confinement, never talking to anybody. Food just kind of slid under, <laughs> minuscule food. Facing the horrors of that. And then she went to concentration camp with her sister, and things there were awful. I mean, you've seen pictures of Auschwitz. She went to Ravenhurst, which was like notorious women's. I mean, it's the Auschwitz of women's is what it really was, an awful place. Rations minimal, poorly clothed, yet forced to stand outside in the freezing cold as they took a census each morning to make sure and account for all the women. They crammed the women in these shelters. Disease spread quickly because the sanitation was terrible. Lice was a problem. On rare opportunity where they had to take a shower, the Nazi soldiers would watch these women disrobe and watch them go in and take a shower and mock them all the time. Very degrading, very difficult time. And yet through this time, both she and her sister found much strength in the Lord. Had opportunities for the gospel abounded because people in the circumstance were looking for some hope and they had hope of the gospel to bring. They led worship services nightly, at least in Ravenhorse, for the, for the women to come and hear the message of hope. Near the end of the war, Betsy died. And um, just, she just sick and got old and got just wasted away. The concentration camp killed her. And then by God's grace, Corey was released. And soon after she was released, I think within weeks, she was out with her new task that God had given her. At one point, she was rescuing Jews. The next point, she was uh, preaching to the women and, and really ministering to people, the gospel. And now she's released to tell the story. And on one particular occasion, she told the story of ministering to a church. She was went around speaking she says at the church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who'd stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein. He said, sorry for the accent, Dirk. To think that, as you say, he washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. So you see what's happening in her mind. She's just even saying, you know what? It's difficult 
to forgive and to love this man. And so she's acknowledging that that's a sin. And so she's praying, God, forgive me of that and help me to overcome that. That's where all of us need to be in struggling with unforgiveness of other people. I tried to smile. I tried to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When, we tell of, when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. It took a lot of love. That was her testimony. It took a lot of love. And it would have taken a lot of love for Philemon to have brought back Onesimus as well. As a runaway slave acted disrespectfully before his escape brought shame to Philemon. And yet here he comes back, a repentant man. With his letter in hand, I'm sure he would have freely confessed his sins to Philemon and asked for forgiveness. We don't know exactly what that was, but Philemon, I've wronged you. I've spoken against you. I've not worked hard. I've run away. I've shamed you. I've blasphemed your name, slandered you. Would you please forgive me? And Philemon, the loving thing to do would be to reach out his hand and forgive. Forgiveness is a loving thing. You know, I've been astonished this week because I looked how often Scripture um, connects love and forgiveness. Let me just give you a few. 1 Corinthians 13.5 Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. There's a wrong, love won't take it into account. 1 Peter 4, verse 8 Keep fervent your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Sins, multitudes of them. Love... Love covers them, lets them go. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 17:9. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. That's what I was talking about. Promise never to bring it up again. But love does. Love sees a transgression and conceals it and hides it and puts it away. What does hatred do? Ah, remember when this. Remember when this. Remember when this. You do that, your intimate friends will be separated because there's always that contention. Forgiveness has never happened. What forgiveness does is a promise never to bring those things up again. So I ask you, just are, are, are you loving? If you're loving, you forgive. I press upon you this morning the, the golden rule. Matthew 7, verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. Think about this. If you sinned against somebody and felt sorrow in your heart for that sin, what do you want them to say? What do you want them to do? You want them to forgive you, right? You want them to, to treat you as if that's a sin of the past. And you long for that. There is nothing more that you want than that. So if anyone comes to you seeking forgiveness, follow the golden rule. 
do to them as you would like them to do to you. Forgive them. Well, I'm, I'm way over time, but I need to tell you this one, one last story. So my experience, I remember one, one occasion, um, sinning against a man and his wife. And um, I, I defended them greatly. I'd said some hurtful things to them. And so I wrote a, a letter of formal apology, particularly this man. And I thought of every sin I could confess and confessed, you know, probably two paragraphs worth of sin towards this man. I followed up with him a couple days later and um, said, you know what, I'm here to tell you that everything in that letter is true. And I've sinned against you in this way and I'm sorry. And I I said, will you forgive me? And you know, I'll never forget his response. He went, "Mm, boy, that's, I don't, I'll try. I'll, I'll, I'll forgive you. He said the words, but I could tell in his heart he he, he wasn't loving me as I would have liked to have been loved. The golden rule wasn't there. To this day, I'm not sure he's ever forgiven me from his heart. But you know what? I'm free. I've confessed it. The burden is off of my shoulders. Whose shoulders is on? It's on his shoulders. After he did that, a few minutes later, he called his wife in to meet. And I confessed my sin to her as well. Her sin, my sins against her were a little bit different. But I did confess them. And I said, I am sorry. Would you please forgive me? And you know what her response was? A big smile came on her face. She said, Steve, of course I will forgive you. And I tell you, it was absolutely settled at that point. No problem between us. Done. Future interaction with her, like no conflict, no problem. I'm still not sure about her husband. Let me ask you, which of these two apply the golden rule? Obviously the wife. She's doing to me as she would like others to do for her, and it makes a world of difference in dealing with her sin before others. I just say forgiveness is a loving thing. So if someone comes, love them and put it aside and forgive them. Forgiveness is the proper thing. Forgiveness is the loving thing. May the Lord fill us and fill our church with forgiving people. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the the forgiveness that you give to us in Christ. And uh, I thank you that in him, by faith alone, our sins can all be wiped away. I think as we reflect upon the Lord's Supper... Reflect upon the death of Christ. May that be where we find our joy and our glory and our hope and our trust in every way is is in Him. So God, I pray for those people particularly today who perhaps are harboring an unforgiving spirit in their heart. I pray that they might see how improper that is and what a dangerous position that puts themselves in. Because mercy, judgment will be merciless to him who shows no mercy. And so God, I pray they would see how it's required of them to show mercy. Not to earn salvation, Lord, but to realize that that's the fruit of salvation is a forgiving heart. And I pray that you would give them with uh, just a, a special dosage of love. I think about Corey Tenboom, her own testimony. God, is that you give the love to forgive. And though it may take a lot of love, Lord, we know that you and in your 
the depths of your being, there is lots of love to give. And so I pray that you would give that to us, that we would be those to make peace among the brethren, to forgive one another, and to, uh, to serve one another in these ways. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.